As you all know too well by now, no doubt, I am Clark Irvin with the Speaker Series. Thank you very much for being here on this rainy morning. One of the joys that I have being here in Washington is that over the course of the years, I've met many, many ambassadors. I've gotten to know a number of them well. I've become close to a few. And the one to whom I'm closest, I think it's fair to say, is our featured guest today, the ambassador of Singapore to the United States, Ashok Kumar Murpuri. Ambassador Murpuri took up his post here as ambassador to Washington in 2012. He's a career diplomat in Singapore, uh, began his career with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 1984. Over the course of the years before he arrived here in Washington, as I say, in 2012, he served, among other things, as the ambassador to Indonesia, the high commissioner to Malaysia, and also the high commissioner to Australia. He graduated with an honors degree from the National University of Singapore. He received an MA degree from the University of London's School of Oriental and African Studies under a very prestigious Raffles Scholarship and he also attended the Program for Executive Development at the Institute for Management Development Switzerland, as well as an advanced management program at a school called the Harvard Business School. <laughs> uh, and he's joined by his lovely wife, Gadi. Um, thank you both so much for being here this morning. And with that, please join me in welcoming the Ambassador of Singapore, Ambassador Thank you and good morning. good morning. And thank you for coming out on a rainy morning. It reminds me of home. I met a couple of people who've lived in Singapore, and it rains every day in Singapore. Like clockwork, usually in the afternoons, we are hot and tropical. So it's, it's like home, but not as cold as it is. We're 30 degrees warmer than Washington, D.C. this morning. But I think the sort of warm reception I have here, Clark's invitation for me to speak over here, really speaks to sort of us, Gauri, and I feeling very much at home here in Washington, D.C. It's our first time here at this church, and it is a privilege to be speaking over here. The church has a very long history, as I looked back into it, one that is more than 200 years old. In fact, next week, you celebrate 203 years of your first service. Modern Singapore is younger than that. When, I, as Clark mentioned, I got the Raffles Scholarship, named after Sir Thomas Stamford Raffles who came to Singapore in February 1819 on behalf of the British Crown in order to secure space for the British Empire. He had been Lieutenant Governor of Java, the Governor of Ben Coolen. The Anglo-Dutch Treaty meant that the British had decided, British and Dutch drew a line that divided Southeast Asia between Dutch territories and British territories. So he landed in Singapore in 1819 and that marks the history of modern Singapore. Singapore had a longer history before that. We have a long traditional history of the Malay archipelago that dates back 700 years. But we mark this era of modern Singapore, and this year is the bicentennial, and people have asked, why would you celebrate British colonialism? The US had its own experience with the British colonialists, and you had to uh, burn the White House down, and uh, you had to fight them with all sorts of things. Ours was a slightly different sort of history, because with the British came what you see are the foundations of modern Singapore. We speak English in Singapore. It's the first language in our schools. Everyone learns their mother tongue as a second language, but the language of government, the language of business, the language of modern commerce is English. As a choice we made, that we wanted English to be the first language. The modern political and legal institutions 
are all British. We have a British style parliamentary system. We've tweaked it, tweaked it along the way, and I'll speak a little bit about that, why we needed to tweak it. We don't have colorful PMQs, Prime Minister questions, like they do in the British Parliament, and I think we are grateful for that, but uh, we do have British parliamentary tradition. We have a British-style legal system with our courts, and I met a couple here who lived in Singapore and did business over there, and that's really the mainstay of Singapore's economic and social success, having a legal system that people take comfort from. For many years, in fact, you could appeal to the House of Lords, the Privy Council in the United Kingdom, for major business cases. We now have our own Supreme Court, and they're the highest court of... Uh, judiciary but you know it, it sort of speaks to where we are and in fact if you go to go go to Singapore now we have converted the Supreme Court now has a beautiful new building but the old Supreme Court is now the National Gallery of Art and you can actually walk into that see the art around there but also experience what it was like being a judge in older Singapore but that's really sort of how we marked that 200 years we became an independent country 54 years ago August 9th, 1965, we had a very, it was not an independence that we wanted. We were ejected out of Malaysia and we had to create a country out of that. A country that was very unlikely to succeed in 1965, today you see it as modern Singapore. From third world to first, as my first prime minister called it, that's really been the remarkable thing about Singapore. But today I want to do three things. Clark asked me to speak a little, since I'm the first ambassador speaking to you, a little bit about what it means to be a diplomat based here in Washington, D.C. I want to speak a little bit about Singapore's modern development, the sort of bright lights and buildings that you see on TV when you watched President Trump meet Chairman Kim in Singapore last July. You saw a bright modern city. When you saw crazy rich Asians last year, you saw a very, very... <laughs> Thriving. But I want to tell you a little bit about how we made that Singapore, and I want to touch a little bit about Singapore's relationship with the United States. And then I'm very happy after that to take any questions that you may have about any of these things. Now, Clark said, I have, I'm a career diplomat. This is my fourth ambassadorship, having served as ambassador to Indonesia, Malaysia, and Australia. The term High Commissioner, I was High Commissioner to Australia and High Commissioner to Malaysia. Again, that speaks to our British heritage. We are Commonwealth countries, and Commonwealth countries accredit High Commissioners to each other's capitals. It's the same role an ambassador plays, but we just use a slightly different nomenclature. But coming to Washington, D.C. seven years ago was a very remarkable shift because every ambassador who comes here, and I know many of you may have met other ambassadors, the ambassadorial core in Washington, D.C. is probably among the best and the brightest of their careers. Many are moving on or coming from political careers. That's not the Singapore case. We are career diplomats. But you have, I think, uh, the Colombian ambassador is a former vice president. The Panamanian is a former judge. The Australian ambassador is a former treasurer. Or many of them use a platform here to then go on to take political careers back home. But so you have assembled over here a large collection of the diplomatic corps from around the world, each one striving very hard to make their country known around here. And that's principally my job over seven years. 
Now you say seven years, many of you may have met ambassadors who are here for two or three years. Singapore tends to keep ambassadors for extended periods. In our 54 years uh, of independence, Singapore has had seven ambassadors to the United States. So you divide it out, seven is about average. So I'm just about going over the average now. Um, there was one who did only one and a half years, and my predecessor did 16 years. So I'm somewhere in between <laughs> that sort of uh, number. But we do that because we are very conscious of the fact that Washington is a city of relationships. An ambassador who comes here needs to build relationships. And these relationships endure beyond administrations, beyond traditional three or four year terms, of ambassadors. The relationship I have with Clark is a long-standing relationship. And these are the important things that's most important for ambassadors. To work with the administration that is elected, using long-term relationships in order to advance our diplomatic interests in this country. And that's critical to what we do. But Washington is just is more than that as well. Washington is a place where it's not just you have a collection of the best and brightest diplomats, you also have the collection of the best and brightest Americans. From around the country, young people strive to come to Washington, D.C. I go around the country a lot. I have been, I'm happy to report, to 46 states. There's four more to go, and then maybe I can say <laughs> it's time to go home. So I'm holding off doing these four so that you know, no one will say, you've done your 15, now go home. But as I go around the country, I speak to universities, I speak to young people. We in Singapore, of course, have students around the country. But I see that young people all want to strive to come to Washington, D.C. They come here bright-eyed, ready to change the world. And whether they go into government, whether they go into policy think tanks, whether they go on Capitol Hill, whether they go into other jobs around here, everyone comes here with a particular purpose. So for a diplomat, it's fascinating because anything you want to know, the world's expert is probably somewhere around. You would just go and knock on the door and say, I need to know something about artificial intelligence. Someone here will be able to tell you about it. I need to know something about what's going on in the Middle East and tell me about the 1919 drawing of lines and someone will be able to give you that history. And so for a diplomat coming here, you, have this, you, you start to understand the world from a much bigger place. When I was ambassador to Indonesia, Malaysia, two very important countries for Singapore, because they are our neighbors, you have a much narrow sort of focus. You're very, very focused only on your country's relationship with either Indonesia or Malaysia, as the case was. But over here, you're much wider, because you are looking at global trends. You are looking at global, global movements of things. And you then try to say, how do I shape my country's relationship in order to deal with that? The United States is still a global superpower. For Singapore, it's a very important superpower. And so for many countries, this is where we need to have people on the ground engaging and talking to people to understand what the future world is going to be. It's also very, the US is also a very important economic power, so I spend quite a lot of time with economic relationships that Singapore has. Singapore is the hub for US businesses in the Asia Pacific. So I go around the country meeting a lot of these businesses that have gone to Singapore. And when I say Singapore is a hub for U.S. businesses, the statistics are astounding. There are more U.S. investments in Singapore than there are in India, China, Japan, Korea combined. 
India, China, Japan, Korea combined have a population of 2.5 billion people. Singapore has a population of 5.7 million people. But US businesses have decided that to do business in Asia, they need to be in Singapore. For all those reasons I told you earlier, the legal system, rule of law, the sort of British tradition of commercial sanctity, these are very important things for businesses. So as an ambassador, these are sort of a broad range of things that I have to do. But selling Singapore is not necessarily the easiest thing to do. Last year, of course, with the movie and with the summit that President Trump had with Chairman Kim in Singapore, suddenly people got curious about Singapore. In fact, the day that President Trump announced that he was going to host his first summit, hold his first summit with Chairman Kim in Singapore, the most Google term was, where is Singapore? <laughs> so you may all sort of, you know, I didn't have to bring a map over here, you can picture it in your head, but when you're sitting somewhere in different parts of the world or in the United States, you start wondering, what, where is Singapore? We are placed very, very strategically, and the reason why the British came 200 years ago to us, between the South China Sea and the Malacca Straits. The movement of global commerce passes through Singapore. We are the hub of that. We are the world's second or third busiest container port. These numbers go up and down. We're not number one. So in that, other things we're number one, but in that we're not number one. But global shipping goes through Singapore. 30 to 40% of global energy routes through Singapore. A lot of container shipping goes through Singapore. But these are not things that came automatically. As I mentioned, we became independent in August 1965. And it was a very unhappy independence. In my lifetime, I have, I'm 60 years old this year, I started life as a British subject. Because when I was born in 1959, Singapore was still a British colony. In 1963, Singapore became part of Malaysia. A referendum was held and Singapore decided you need to be part of a bigger hinterland. You cannot survive on your own. The British were leaving. Singapore joined Malaysia and I became a Malaysian subject. In 1965, the Malaysians asked us to leave and I became a Singapore citizen. So without changing geographies, I've had three citizenships. I did not need to go anywhere else. But that speaks of a certain trauma as well of people uncertain about their future. My parents came to Singapore as immigrants. My wife's parents came to Singapore as immigrants. You speak to a very uncertain future for yourself. And why? It's, it's a, to give you a sense of how uncertain our future was in 1965. We are a small geographic island, about 270 square miles. A little bit larger than Washington, D.C. You have to have your own food, you have to have your own energy, you have to have your own water, none of which Singapore has. We are smaller than Rhode Island, which is the smallest state in the United States. You could drive across the island in one and a half hours. It's a sense of how do you make this country work? Having been thrown out of Malaysia, and the reason we got asked to leave Malaysia was because of racial and religious differences, and having nowhere else to go, you had to make this country work. And that was the biggest challenge Singapore faced. As I said, we have not, no agriculture because all the land has to be used for more economic productive work. We, imported, we import all our food now. We have no energy, not a drop of oil, no coal, no gas, no shale. All our energy has got to be imported to keep all the lights on. 
And even our water is imported. We have long-standing water agreements with Malaysia that allow us to buy water from Malaysia. And in each one of these, we have built new strengths. But that's what was really critical in terms of Singapore's early development. In 1965, we had 20% unemployment. We were probably considered the least likely country to succeed. Third world country, faced with a huge amount of challenges. It also was a time when there were geopolitical challenges in the region. The 1960s, if you remember Southeast Asia, was a time of conflict in Vietnam. Communism was active in the region. We had a communist insurgency in Singapore. There was a communist insurgency in Malaysia. There was a communist uh, revolution coup in Indonesia. Thailand had a communist revolution. Here the focus is, of course, the Vietnam War. But the rest of us were also impacted by the way that communism impacted the region. And these were sort of some of the things that the leadership had to overcome. And they had to take a very long-term view of these things. So the first thing they did, and you will find this underlying everything Singapore does, is they said, we're not going to be trapped by ideology. Socialism, capitalism, we're going to look at everything and take a very pragmatic view of issues. So a very pragmatic government that said, let's look at what works. Let's not get tied down into any of the isms. Because the world is changing, but let's make it sort of a practical reason. And that's really driven where Singapore is today. The next focus has been really on education. Given that we have no resources, no food, no energy, no water, the only resource we had was people. And then education became a very, very critical part of Singapore's success. When I was in school, when I was a young boy in school, our schools were, were not very good. But a whole focus on education, a whole focus on teachers, a whole focus on not wasting people's abilities, of using them to the best of their abilities, today ranks Singapore one of the top education systems in the world, with the best outcomes in many of the tests, and even one in which we do not stop at our current successes. We've got excellent K-12 education. Our students are top-ranked in the PISA rankings. We have put in place very good universities. But now the challenge is, how do we get people to constantly learn with new, with new skills? Because the challenge of education does not stop when you finish college. It does not stop when you finish a postgraduate degree. When you finish a postgraduate degree at 25, you still have to work for the next 45 years. And the shifting technologies means that we always have to keep people working. And therefore, we need to keep them always trained and ready for the future. And the government's taken a big lead in this. In Singapore, our education system is largely a public education system. Everyone goes to public schools. We're small enough so people can move around. But also, we train and pick, we pick the teachers and train them very well and move teachers around. And that's a critical part of where we are. The third area that we had to work on after the very pragmatic economic policies and education was deal with multiculturalism. We are a multi-ethnic society. Last month, my Prime Minister was in New York and he received an award, World Statesman Award, uh, at the Appeal of Conscience Foundation, which celebrates multiculturalism. And he spoke of Singapore's multicultural heritage. We are probably religiously the most diverse country in the world. Christian, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Jains, Sikhs, 
Sikhs, everyone lives in harmony in Singapore. But this is not an easy thing to maintain, as every country knows. And given our own history of having to leave Malaysia because of racial and religious differences, it became an even more important thing to manage. Our population is 70% Chinese, who came to Singapore in the 19th and early 20th century to work in the British uh, commercial hub. So they said, maybe we should make Singapore much more a Chinese-speaking country. The leadership said, no, we'll make it English. We are part of a region that is surrounded by Muslim countries. Indonesia is 95% Muslim. Malaysia is 65% Muslim. Singapore has about a 15% Muslim population. And people said, we should look at the Muslims in the region for our models. And we said, no, we've got to make it a completely meritocratic state that is secular, but not anti-religious. So today, when you go to Singapore, and those of you who do visit, look out for this, you will see a church next to a mosque, next to a temple, and people understanding each other's religions. We celebrate each other's religious holidays as our national holidays. So next weekend, when you celebrate your 203rd service, 203rd year of service, in Singapore, we're going to celebrate Diwali, the Indian festival, and it'll be a holiday for everyone. We celebrate Eid for the Muslims. It's a holiday for everyone. We celebrate Good Friday and Christmas for the Christians. It's a holiday for everyone. We make this an even bow. We don't have more holidays than you have in the United States. <laughs> Just to sort of make that clear, we're a very hardworking population. You have 11 days, we have 11 days, but we don't celebrate our presidents. So we just pick our uh, religious holidays and say, but it became a way for everyone to understand, I'm having a day off, and teachers can then say, you're having a day off because the Indians are celebrating Diwali. What is Diwali? We invite people to each other's homes. That's really part of that whole <coughs> culture that has been built. But it's also had to be built with legal structures. So. We have a Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act. And in many countries around the world, they'll say that's too tough and authoritarian. But we feel that when people live cheek and jowl with each other, you need to be very conscious of religious differences. So our mosques, which have to have the call of prayer, all agreed that they will point their uh, speakers inwards rather than outwards. And we have... The Muslims have also agreed that why don't we have the call to prayer on radio so those who want to hear it can hear it, not everyone else in the community. So we have made adjustments, religious adjustments for everybody to live in harmony. In Singapore, one thing that was very important when we did become independent was housing because everyone lived in squatter colonies, the British style, and those of you who visited former British colonies in Asia would find that there's an Indian quarter, a Chinese quarter, a Malay quarter, and that's the way the British separated Singapore out. We still have these quarters, but now more as places that you can visit to go and try Chinese food, Indian food, and Malay food. But we built a national housing policy. Public housing, which around the world is usually derided as not a very popular choice, but in Singapore, we made public housing a way for people to own their own homes. Because a country that is all migrant, the only way that they can stay connected to their society is by owning their own homes. So today, over 80% of the people in Singapore own their own homes. Much of this is public housing. For you, most young couples who get married qualify for public housing. And these are very nicely built. As you go around them, these are neighborhoods. Neighborhoods that are self-contained with schools, with shops, 
with places of worship, with sports facilities, so that people can engage with each other. But we also mandated that these public housing, not the private housing, public housing areas must also be multiracial. Because when people move out of these quarters, religious, uh, racial quarters, they wanted to be with each other. If you're in a Muslim quarter, you say, I want to go to a place where I'll have halal stores, where I'll have the mosque next to me. But we said, no, everyone's got to mix with each other. So we created a system where even in the public housing areas, in each block, people had to come from different races. Then we would say, when you go downstairs to the coffee shop, there will be a halal stall available for you. You can buy halal food. There will be a mosque nearby. So everyone feels comfortable with this. Many countries call this social engineering. We call this a practical approach to dealing with the fact we live next to each other, we have to be together with each other, and we have to get along well with each other. So it's a, it's a challenge, it's a constant process. Part of the challenge of modern technology means that there's a lot more outside voices coming in about where looking at the world religious movements and social movements, but it's again something that we constantly have to do. The other thing we had to do was also, as I said, tweak the, tweak the political system. We inherited the British parliamentary system, but we've tweaked it such a way that there will always be minority representation in the parliament. Because each constituency happens to be, would happen to be majority Chinese with 70%. As you draw the lines, and because we didn't want to create racial ghettos, it meant that in most constituencies, you would have a majority Chinese. But then to ensure that there is minority representation in parliament, the districts are combined together, three to four or five, and in each one of these combined districts must have a minority representative. We have a presidential council on minority rights that looks at every legislation to make sure that it does not discriminate against the minorities. Today, we have a Muslim president who happens to be a woman who wears the tudong. It is, speaks again of Singapore's racial harmony. The president, she is uh, head of state. The chief executive is the prime minister, but she's popularly elected. And we, we want to make sure that racial minorities feel very much part of the system as well. And that's quite important for us. And so that's really some of the key elements where Singapore's success has been. It's not always going to be plain sailing. It was just earlier this week, uh, the World Economic Forum said Singapore is the most competitive economy in the world. We nudged the U.S. We used to be, the U.S. was number one last year. The U.S. dropped to number two, and Singapore became number one. The two of us kind of challenge, but it's a little bit of unfair competition given the size and of the U.S. economy and the size of the Singapore economy. But it's not just about competition. There are deeper challenges that Singapore faces. One is demographic. Like many developed countries, we are facing a rapidly aging population. Healthy, will live much longer, but they have, we are not having enough new Singaporeans in our system. Immigration, like in all countries, is sensitive. About a third of our working, popu working population come from overseas. But that's, we think about the limit of what we can deal with. So how do you get people to be more productive in, yet with a smaller population? As dependency ratios change, as people get older, how do we work some of these issues? That's one big challenge that the government is dealing with. Pushing up retirement ages is one thing, but that may not be enough. The other big challenge is really around climate change. We're a small island that is 
we contribute about 0.1% of global emissions. So no matter how well we deal with global emissions, we will be subject to climate change. The seas are rising around Singapore. Singapore has expanded in my lifetime by 40% because of reclamation. These, this reclamation now has to be extended, made higher because of rising seas. Climate change and the impact of global countries is very, very critical to us. So last couple of months ago, the government announced that it's going to be a $100 billion program in order to deal with climate change over the next 100 years. So a billion dollars every year for the next 100 years. Very few governments can take, make 100-year plans, but that is something that we have to do because that's, the island is all that we have. Indonesia, where I was ambassador, the capital, Jakarta, is going to move to another province in Kalimantan because 25% of Jakarta is sinking. Singapore has no luxury of moving ourselves anywhere else. So we just have to make do with what we have and then deal with the realities of issues like climate change. The third big area that we are dealing with is geopolitical challenges. And here I want to speak a little bit about Singapore's relationship with the United States and some of the issues around there. It's been relatively easy for me to be ambassador over here because of Singapore's positive relationship with the United States. We have a free trade agreement with the US that was signed in 2004. In the 15 years, the US has a very healthy surplus with Singapore, both in goods and services, and that's helpful at this time. But it also speaks of how close the economic relationship is. I spoke about the deep US economic presence in Singapore. There's also a very deep Singapore economic presence in the United States. We're one of the largest Asian investors in the US with companies operating around the region. Recently, the Coast Guard gave a contract to build their first icebreakers in 50 years. This went to a Singapore company that has a shipyard in Mississippi. So a tropical country shipyard is building the first icebreakers for the United States in 50 years. But it speaks of the, of the abilities of our companies to do well over here, to succeed, to look at the new challenges and to shape how they can offer their, 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 uh, their manufacturing for, new, for the future. We also have a very strong defense relationship. When my Prime Minister met President Trump in New York during the UN General Assembly, they signed a defense agreement, uh, renewed a defense agreement, that allows the US to use our bases in Singapore. This de defense agreement is 30 years old. It was first signed in 1990 for a 15-year period, renewed in 2005, and now renewed till 2035. It speaks again for the way we see the U.S. presence in the region. What we wanted by allowing the U.S. to use our bases in Singapore was to keep an active U.S. presence. Because after the end of the Cold War, the U.S. had to withdraw from the bases they had in the Philippines. While Singapore could not replicate the bases that the U.S. had in the Philippines, just given our size, we opened up our facilities to use. So today, if you go to Singapore, you may see a littoral combat ship. You may see a U.S. aircraft carrier. You may see a submarine. And it's a very happy, healthy relationship. But it's also one in which the U.S. allows us to use their bases in the U.S. Last week, I was in Idaho, Mountain Home Air Force Base, where we have an F-15 squadron. And we brought together our Air Force squadrons in the U.S. We have an F-16 squadron in Arizona. We have an Apache squadron in Arizona, including troops from Singapore as well, to do a very significant defense exercise that we do every two years. The space that we use for that exercise is 20 times the size of Singapore. 
But again, it speaks to the trust as you walk into this command post run entirely by young Singapore soldiers, men and women. And the Americans have so much confidence that they let us use their bases. And we have this permanent presence over here that makes it a very close relationship. When Hurricane Harvey hit a few years ago, there was only one foreign military that could help. That was the Singapore helicopters that we had based in Grand Prairie, Texas. They were working with the Texas National Air Guard in order to do humanitarian relief assistance during Hurricane Harvey, during Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Again, it speaks to the very close defense relationship. We are ordering the F-35s, and that should be in the process over the next few years. <coughs> but it also speaks to a very close diplomatic and political relationship. I mentioned my prime minister was in New York two weeks ago. That is his third meeting with President, fourth meeting with President Trump. So they meet regularly. The president, the prime minister has also had very regular meetings with President Trump's predecessor, President Obama. In fact, in 2016, Singapore was honored with a state visit when the prime minister came in and spent the whole day with President Obama and his wife celebrating the Singapore-United States relationship. But the key of what Singapore wants to achieve, and my big role here, is making sure the U.S. stays engaged in Southeast Asia. I started about speaking about diplomacy over here, and I want to finish with diplomacy over here. What happens is that even though you have all these experts over here that look around the world, sometimes the experts are very narrowly siloed, and they look very much at only areas of very domestic concern. What Singapore is interested in is a bigger Singapore, is a bigger view from America, from America, one that keeps Southeast Asia in that sights, one that keeps a country like Singapore that could not succeed 54 years ago without an active U.S. presence, without the U.S. rule of law that gave us that security and stability to develop where we are today. So that's the biggest challenge that we face, is making sure the U.S. stays engaged in Asia. One of the first things I did when I got here in 2012 was I made a contribution to the Vietnam War uh, Education Center. Hasn't been built yet. The Vietnam War in the United States was a very domestic time of turmoil. But for the countries of Southeast Asia, it was also a time when we were given the space to develop ourselves. Because the US was fighting in Vietnam, it created that space for Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia to develop into the future. So Singapore wanted to make that contribution to the world so that at least there's got to be one space that says, while you had the domestic turmoil around the Vietnam War, you also saved hundreds of millions of people in Southeast Asia. And that's really the biggest challenge for any Southeast Asian ambassador here, and particularly a Singapore ambassador, making sure the U.S. stays engaged and we remain friends for a long time. Thank you very much for your attention. I'm very happy to take any questions. Thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador. Questions? Powell? How has the absence of a U.S. ambassador affected the dialogue between our two countries? As a career diplomat, I believe in institutional links. The Singapore is unusual in the fact that of all the countries in Southeast Asia, we're the only one that has a political appointee as ambassador. The other countries have career diplomats, and that process continues. We follow a certain the process over here of the president nominating a candidate, going through Senate confirmation. That's really a US process. But meanwhile, we have not allowed it to disrupt the way that we do things. 
the U.S. Embassy is run by a very effective charge, and we keep a very strong relationship through that. So I think that as we build institutional links, having the ambassador is helpful because the ambassador speaks for what the administration wants to do. But I think that you have very smart, successful, capable career prof professionals who are holding the fort in Singapore. So it's not something that I'm too concerned about. Yes. I understand that some of your neighbors in Malaysia and Indonesia have a fomenting Islamic terrorist movement. I'm wondering how, I, I understand you have a smaller population of Muslims, but how is that impacting Singapore? Could you just repeat that for those in the background? The question is about the risk of Islamic terrorism in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's something that is a real present danger that has emerged in the region, particularly after 9-11. After 9-11, when US troops went into Kabul, they found that there was a group that was targeting US forces in Singapore. Because we're so close to you, we became a target for these Islamic terrorist groups. And we went in and we uh, managed to deal with them early. It's a constant problem in Southeast Asia with the large Muslim population, not just in Indonesia and Malaysia, which are majority Muslim, but in Southern Thailand, you have a Muslim group. In Philippines, you had a Muslim separatist group as well. And in Singapore, with our minority population. In Singapore, the numbers are very small who have been radicalized, but people are being radicalized. They are being radicalized now much more. The bigger challenge is they're being radicalized online. And Singapore is as connected to the world as anywhere else. We have got people who want to try and make it into Iraq and Syria to fight for ISIS. So we deal with it in a fairly, it's a sort of two-pronged manner in which we deal with it. First, obviously, you have to have a national security approach to it, which means anyone who threatens Singapore has to be dealt with, and we put them into detention. But we also work very hard at rehabilitation. Because many of the people who were detained, and we see this around the world, tend to be younger. And you cannot envisage that they're going to spend the next 40, 50 years of their life in some sort of detention facility. So we try to rehabilitate them. Not always successfully. Some of the hardcore ones are very difficult to rehabilitate. We've had about a 60-70% success rate. But what we've also tried to do is work with their families to make sure that if someone is detained, the family is not left isolated because tradition, usually these are men. Now we had a couple more women. The men tend to be the sole breadwinners and families then suffer from that. And you may be creating and breeding a new generation who feel very dis disappointed with the country. So we've dealt with families. We've also created religious rehabilitation groups that bring wider community. We take an approach. It's one thing to try and prevent an attack, but the second challenge is what happens after an attack. You want to make sure that the society is not fractured, that you're not blaming the bank teller who happens to be Muslim and say, your community did this to us. Or you're not blaming the Muslim teacher and say, you did this to us. To make sure the community is resilient. And that's the biggest challenge. Our native neighbors, Indonesia and Malaysia, they work as hard. They're a much bigger population. So a place like Indonesia, where I spent many years, uh, the groups pop up everywhere. There was just an attack two weeks ago on your security minister who got stabbed in the stomach as he got out of the car. 
You can prevent a bomb, but it's very hard to prevent someone coming up with a knife to stab the security minister. See, we work together in the region. Again, the US presence is very critical for us. We share a lot of intelligence with the US on this, and the US shares intelligence with us in order that the region can work on these issues. It's something that we don't pretend, we, we, we can't pretend it's not there. It is there, but we need to deal with it. And I said, part of the key is really resilience after, should there be an attack. Yes, sir. Uh, for the senior citizen community, what kind of a program do you offer to them? Like here to study uh, Medicare, Medicaid, what do they have for the senior citizen? Well, health is one part. We actually have a hybrid health system. There is a public health system that's available to all people, all citizens of Singapore. It's a co-pay system and it is just public hospitals and public clinics that are available to everyone to use. And most and that's available and uh, there is a private health system as well that goes with that. For the older citizens, and I am happy to say that I now qualify for this generation as well. There was one generation that was called the pioneer generation, so they're my father's generation. So then they got even much higher subsidized medical uh, facilities. Already the public facilities are largely subsidized, world class, but they got even higher subsidies. My generation this year, they just announced, those between the ages of 60 and 70, we're called the Merdeka generation, the independence generation. So we get a certain amount of subsidy as well. But it's not just giving people health benefits. It is making sure that they remain active members of society. So we have community centers where senior citizens can come together during the day and engage with each other. We don't want them stuck in their homes because they are living longer. We want them to come together. We have programs for young teenagers from schools to come to these community centers and help the senior citizens get online. Because Singapore is moving towards something called a smart nation. Everything is going to be online. But you don't want the senior citizen to be left behind. So we have programs for computer training, computer literacy for these people. We have exercise spaces, because I said we live in, we have parks. If you go to a park, there's gym equipment that is really built for an older citizen to use. They don't have to pay a gym membership. They can get on an exercise bike and just cycle for 20 minutes without paying anything. Get on a very relaxed elliptical machine. We want people to come out of their homes in order to spend time together. And we believe in sort of intergenerational sort of society. One advantage we do have is because Singapore is so small, people may move out of their homes, but they're not too far away from their parents or grandparents. I mean, it's something that large countries like U.S. have some difficulty because you have to go across the country to see your parents or grandparents. In Singapore, we try to encourage a lot of intergenerational mixing. So it's, it's one thing to look after their health. The other thing is making sure that they remain active and productive members of society. I think that is really the key as people are getting older. My wife wants to add something. Yeah. <laughs> she probably knows more about senior citizens than I do. them to live next to each other. You can put yep. a flat next to each other, yeah. break down the Thank you. have a, a joint family meals. Thank you. Because I mentioned we have public housing. When a couple buys their own home as they get married, they're actually encouraged to buy a home closer to their parents. And because you've got... And the closer you are, the better the incentive. And if you actually get a home next door, the walls can be taken down. And you have, 
everyone's got their own space, but you also build your own home. So it's really looking at ways that we can make the senior citizens much more engaged with younger people as well. I think we've got time for one last question if there's a, if it's short. Yes. I'm yes. Not, you. I'm not sure. Uh, actually, oh, what do we do? We'll do two. Quick, we'll do, two. We'll do two and answer both together. <laughs> I'll keep a short answer. Can you comment just a minute on the, not only the, the status, but how you pay teachers compared to how we pay teachers here in the United States, how they're trained, etc. And then, Chris, Adam, your question? Chris, go ahead. Well, my question had to do with immigration, and my, I think I heard you say that this is one of the main avenues you're using uh, to address your uh, demographic challenge. I'm curious if I heard correctly what your it's hard. Okay, let me do the education first. First, the reason why I'm a successful ambassador is I don't compare Singapore to my host country. <laughs> but I'll tell you what we do in Singapore. Because you have long historical traditions, very different sort of traditions of doing many things, including uh, teaching. Uh, we moved teachers into becoming part of uh, people who were treated as very successful in society. Around the world, it's always that those who can do, those who can't teach. And we wanted to move away from that. So in fact, to be a teacher in Singapore, you have to be from the top one-third of your cohort graduating from university, which is not easy. I know people who want to be teachers, but they fall below that, and they're sorry, we can't do it. Then we train the teachers, and we give them a lot of expertise, but we also give them other skills as well. And then we, we have the advantage of being able to rotate teachers. So no one can serve in a school more than six years so that your skills get moved around. And the successful principals actually get moved around much more frequently. So that, you do, yes, there are different levels of schools, a meritocratic-based system, but you want to make sure that no school is left behind. And so teaching the students is important, but making sure the teachers are well compensated is a very critical part of this and well-trained and respected in society. On immigration, immigration is a challenge. Immigrants can only fill a certain number of our population. As I said, one-third of our working population are foreigners. That's about the maximum we can do. If you go to the Gulf, you'll see 90% of the working population. We, we cannot reach that. So about two-thirds has to be people from Singapore. We also have a military, compulsory military service, and that's only for people from Singapore. And if you don't have enough children, you're not going to be able to staff your military. Every young man at the age of 18 goes to the military for two years. But we have a fairly selective immigration system. Uh, it, we cannot take everyone. We are very attractive for people to come to work. So there has to be a job. The jobs are available, but we want to make sure that we're getting good quality immigrants. And we're looking for immigrants who can potentially grow roots in Singapore, who can stay for the long term. But you also want to have very, very skilled people coming in. So there's a whole range of immigrants coming in, those who may work in construction. You have to have those coming in as well. But they come for shorter periods. And then you've got people coming in to do professional jobs, and we hope that they take a longer look at Singapore. And then you've got some people coming in a very top executive position who are there for shorter periods. But it becomes a challenge because even with one third, everyone looks around the corner and says, suddenly I feel I'm a stranger in my own land. I think that's really a challenge every country has got to face. Thank you. Everyone, please join me. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Thank you. 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 Thank you.